We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by independent political consultant, Sean Su. Happy to be back. And on the telephone from Taijong by regular commentator, Donovan Smith. And great to be back. Tonight we'll be discussing President Tsai Ing-wen meeting with senior national security officials to discuss the status of cross-strait ties and issues, an outcry over the abduction of and murder of a Malaysian student in Tainan, a constitutional court hearing on the psychiatric detention of sex offenders, a lawsuit filed against the Ministry of the Interior in an attempt to block government plans to issue new electronic ID cards next year due to data security concerns, and an online petition to ban an animal show in Nantou. But we'll begin with a big story of the week, that of course being the US election. And as we record this show, we're still waiting for its outcome. And of course that election took place on Wednesday Taiwan time and attracted rather a lot of attention here. And not just among expat citizens from the United States, as local people have also been voicing their opinions about who they wanted to win. Now President Tsai went on Thursday, took to her Facebook to allay concerns that a change in the White House could see a change in Washington Taipei ties, saying that those ties will continue to flourish regardless of who wins America's presidential election, as support for Taiwan enjoys cross-party consensus in the United States. Tsai also said her administration is closely following the election results and the government has every confidence that no matter who wins the White House, the US will continue to support Taiwan. Now, according to Tsai, her administration has always maintained cordial ties with both the Republican and Democratic parties in the United States and will work toward closer ties with them following the election based on existing foundations. Now, of course, those comments come... I mean, well, there's been some allegations thrown around by various people that the DPP has been favouring Donald Trump and the Republicans rather than Joe Biden and the Democrats. So, Sean, do you think the DPP did did favour, does favour a Trump White House over a Joe Biden one? And what have you seen among members of the public here in regards to support for one or the other of the US presidential hopefuls? Uh, I actually don't think uh, the DPP is naive enough to put all of its eggs in one basket. From what I've observed and actually reached out to uh, several uh, DPP officials privately, is that they, uh, in the past, and by the way, this is similar to how Taiwanese-American groups or uh, other groups who advocate for better U.S.-Taiwan relations is that they aim for a Taiwan to be a bipartisan issue, bipartisan, as in uh, they don't want to make Taiwan into a very partisan issue where only Republicans support Taiwan or where only you know Democrats do, because that puts Taiwan's future security at risk. Uh, case in point, uh, a lot of these pro-Taiwan bills that have passed recently were started in the legislature, which started in Congress, and they were um, voted by uh, Bipartisanly, as in unanimously, you know, when every single person on the Democrats and the Republicans both vote for a pro-Taiwan bill, it's no longer just Republicans. Now, I do understand that Republicans tend to get on TV more. They tend to go to the press more when they pass a pro-Taiwan bill or when they start a pro-Taiwan bill. So therefore, the media tends to portray them as the ones that really support Taiwan. Another thing I noticed is 
Uh, I did, I don't want to offend or point out or call out any specific news groups, but I noticed that these bills tend to be co-sponsored or started by the same, uh, by the, you know, the same crowd of very pro-Taiwan Democrats and Republicans, but guess who put, they, they put on the covers of, of these news articles. It's going to be a Republican like Ted Cruz, you know, it's never going to be somebody like Sherrod Brown, who's a Democrat. Um, it's going to be somebody like Marco Rubio. And that kind of bias actually snowballs into a very large uh, impression uh, that only Republicans support Taiwan. Now, and it's not true. And in terms of the public, uh, I do see a lot of pan-green media uh, biting onto this, and they may not understand that Trump himself has not requested any particular pro-Taiwan bills, but that it was overwhelmingly veto-proof bills started by the United States Congress, and therefore they may get that impression. So my impression of the public is in Taiwan is that they may not fully understand how the United States state system works. So they just assume that ah, you know, Donald Trump is the one starting all these bills, or Donald Trump is the one who started these arms sales. A lot of these arms sales were requested specifically by Taiwan. Uh, we wanted those specific arms. So this isn't necessarily uh, something that Trump himself started. It's just the climate since 20, uh, uh, 2017 has, you know, with Xi Jinping being more assertive uh, and more, very aggressive outwardly. In fact, recently, uh, Xi Jinping basically stated that he wishes to surpass the United States uh, by 2035 or 2049, that all sides has said, have said that they uh, are aware that China is aggressive and that the quote-unquote China experiment, where engaging with China and hoping that it will improve in human rights and other things that matter, uh, have proven to be a failure. So therefore, um, the United States on all sides, both Democrats and Republicans, see that China is more and more of a threat and definitely not conducive for regional stability in Asia. And Donovan, of course, the DPP coming out and sort of, we support both sides insisting this. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, obviously, if you're, if you're Tsai Ing-wen or Xiaobi Kim, yeah, that, that's exactly what you need to say, and that's exactly what you need to pursue. Um, I think that uh, particularly Xiaobi Kim has done an excellent job of reaching out to uh, members of both parties and try and... Uh, make sure that going forward, Taiwan is supported from both sides. Now, inside of Taiwan, opinion polls have shown that something like DPP supporters support uh, the Republicans or Trump 80 to 20 uh, over Biden, and whereas KMT is almost the opposite, it was 70-something to 19% in favor of, of Biden. Um, and the younger Taiwanese tend to support Trump, um, uh, by huge margins, which at, at first to to an overseas observer might seem a little bit you know incongruous, uh, considering the DVP was the party that passed uh, marriage equality and um, would be considered a little bit more leaning to the left. But of course, for most Taiwanese, they're viewing it as a pretty much a one issue, uh, one issue. They're, they're viewing it through the lens of just one issue, and that's what's good for Taiwan. And the the last few years, I'm you know go, extending on Sean's comments, is the last few years the atmosphere in Washington has changed. The Trump administration has put in a lot of people who are very pro Taiwan and much tougher on China, and that of course comes through in the opinion polling here of. Uh, 
to DPP members and younger members because this has been uh, generally good for Taiwan. Now, from the high levels, directly responding to your question, the the fact of the matter is that both the the Republicans and the Democrats have moved closer to Taiwan. Um, The question mark, of course, is... Uh, in Congress, as Sean noted, the, there's been a strong move where, where it was traditionally Republicans who are much stronger uh, on the Taiwan issue, supporting Taiwan. Uh, a lot of Democrats have moved in the same direction in the last few years. So concentrating on, the, on those relations is really helpful, I think, for, for the Taiwan side. And I think that's being reciprocated by a, a lot of Democrats. The big question mark, I think, comes in what kind of administration would a Biden presidency pick? Because when you look at the two candidates, both Trump and Biden, they're actually both pretty mixed bags when it comes to the issue of Taiwan. Um, Trump has famously, at least according to John Bolton's book, uh, kind of belittled Taiwan. On the other hand, Joe Biden, uh, but we don't actually know a whole lot about what Trump actually personally thinks about Taiwan. It's he doesn't really talk about it very much. Uh, whereas Biden has said quite a bit, the problem is at different points in time, he's, he's been radically different. In other words, the, he's written op-eds in the New York Times basically saying give up on Taiwan, don't bother defending it. Uh, he's voted against a key legislation, but he's also voted for key legislation, including the Taiwan Relations Act. He's voted for and against arms packages. And while it would definitely be a mistake to characterize the Obama administration that Biden was, of course, the vice vice president as being anti-Taiwan, that's definitely not the case. It was just a bit less friendly than the than the Trump administration. However, the ground really has, as Sean noted, has really shifted politically in the United States on the issue of China. And we're hoping, and it looks like, and certainly the the Congress uh, on the congressional side, it has shown that the Democrats have shifted their 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 view on Taiwan to a much more pos- Taiwan positive uh, viewpoint. The question is, what or who would a Biden presidency bring in to key positions like Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, and where they stand? And that's a little bit of a question mark at this point. And moving on now, President Tsai Ing-wen met with senior national security officials this past weekend, at which it was reported that Tsai told the officials that she remains willing to engage in substantive dialogue with the Chinese leadership on equal terms, but she also warned that cross-strait peace will not be achieved by showing weakness or making concessions. Of course, the meeting took place ahead of the US election, and as Chinese military aircraft and vessels are continuing to carry out operations in waters and airspace around Taiwan. Now, the presidential office released a statement saying that that the meeting's agenda included talks on China's military threat, regional security, ways to strengthen ties with the United States, stability in cross-strait relations, and domestic economic stability and security. Now, according to the statement, Tsai said that Taiwan will continue to act as a responsible member of the region, while the Ministry of National Defence and the National Security Council will carry out risk assessments to ensure the military is prepared for potential provocations. Tsai also reiterated that cross-strait stability is in the best interests of both sides and peaceful coexistence should be based on mutual respect, goodwill and understanding. So, Sean, of course, nothing new there, but of course this meeting did come 
at a rather crucial time ahead of the US election and as China, of course, is getting more assertive in the region. I think strategically, this is very wise of President Tsai, because to China, uh, this might seem weak. I think this actually highlights the cultural difference between Taiwan and China, where Tsai is prudent. She understands that when she offers a fig leaf uh, to China, and China doesn't react in a positive manner, this makes Taiwan look good. At this critical time, it is important for Taiwan to maintain its image as the non-aggressor across uh, the problems across the Taiwan Strait. So it is, I think, very smart of Tai, and she does this almost every year, if not more so, that she's willing to have talks without preconditions. It's very important to note that the People's Republic of China insists that Taiwan abide or acknowledge several things that it wants on its own terms before any meetings are to take place. So uh, China will insist that, you know, as long as Taiwan doesn't come to the table under its own conditions, under conditions that China has, that Taiwan is the weak one, Taiwan is the wrong one. But I don't think the world sees it that way. I think, you know, naturally, two, two groups coming to the table without having to have those preconditions naturally is seems like the right thing. So, uh, yeah, I think this is a great move, but you will see more of these moves as long as China refuses to come to the table on equal terms. Yes, and I completely agree with uh, what Sean says and, uh, you know, carrying that a little bit forward. For years, there there was the impression, for example, going back to the Tenshabian era, where Taiwan was the one upsetting the status quo, Taiwan was the one being provocative, um, which, of course, is totally false because Taiwan is its own country, and as President Tsai did note in that BBC interview, Taiwan, as, as the Republic of China, is already an independent nation. Now, she has very carefully crafted, and she is a professional diplomat, and she's excellent at this, is very carefully crafted a message for the international public and you know, diplomatically that Taiwan is not the one that is upsetting the status quo. And she's very carefully framing uh, the Republic of China, Taiwan, as she puts it, within that existing framework of of being the an independent nation that has all, you know, has been for seventy years, uh, referencing the the uh, KMT government's uh, move, uh, movement to Taiwan, not the original founding of the Republic of China, uh, to Taiwan. And she's made it very, very clear that it's Taiwan that is holding firm to its separate existence, which is perfectly reasonable, as does not change the status quo, and she frames it very carefully so that is underscored, so that the sovereignty of Taiwan is, is underscored, but it's not changing anything uh, unilaterally. And so that means that everything that China does that the PRC is doing is now the part is now is what is coming under scrutiny and they have been pushing the envelope changing the status quo constantly and it's becoming clearer and clearer and what uh, President Tsai is doing is she's underscoring uh, very strongly that it's China it's the People's Republic that is changing the status quo it's the People's Republic of China that is the aggressor they are the ones who are denying the facts on the ground, whereas Taiwan is not. And I think that sends a very, very 
she sends a calm, stable message to the world, whereas China is coming across as the bully, the aggressor, the military incursions, the ramping up of the rhetoric, the bombastic editorials in the Global Times, and of course the international press is picking up on this. Meanwhile, the international press is being moved out of China uh, between tensions between Beijing and Washington, particularly U.S. media outlets. They're, they're starting to send their journalists here to Taiwan. So Taiwan's also getting a more sympathetic hearing uh, on that front because you're getting journalists here who previously would just fly over Taiwan and go to Hong Kong or Shanghai or Beijing. They're now paying a lot of attention to the Taiwan side. So President Tsai is essentially... She's now got the wind at her back, uh, which helps tremendously as well. So the international press is also picking up on this issue. And so Tsai is framing this very beautifully and very carefully. And uh, Xi Jinping is just coming across as a nasty bully. Yeah, actually, um, just want, wanting to uh, point out how successful she's been doing this. Uh, a couple weeks ago, the CSIS did some surveys on U.S. public support for Taiwan's defense. And U.S. public support for Taiwan defense has increased dramatically. Uh, I remember approximately 15 years ago, uh, U.S. support for Taiwan was approximately maybe 30% of Americans, roughly, thought that defending Taiwan would be worthwhile. And this has changed over time. It's increasing. And this is just all entirely out of, uh, I think, Tsai's success in making Taiwan's public image uh, or reforming Taiwan's public image precisely as the peacemaker. And moving away from politics, well, it's got politics in it, but it's not really about politics. It's rather a sad story, that being the abduction and murder of a 24-year-old Malaysian student who was studying in Tainan. Well, that rocked the island this week and drew responses from the presidential office all the way down. Now, President Tsai Ing-wen issued an apology to the parents of the woman. Premier Su Jung Chung vowed that the government will take action to improve public safety. Tainan Mayor Huang Weijie said that he would step up the installation of streetlights in remote areas while Foreign Minister Joseph Wu told reporters that Taiwan remains one of the safest places in Asia despite the incident. Now, the chief of Tainan City's Guayrem Police Precinct has been removed from his post due to negligence in handling a previous police report. And that report was fired by another student at the same university and she said that a man tried to abduct her in September at the same location where the Malaysian student was abducted. Now, several police precincts at city and county levels across the island have been carrying out safety checks on schools in the areas and the new Taipei City Police Department has established a line messaging group with schools in the area, which is geared towards developing a campus safety network. There have been calls, of course, for government officials to be punished for their negligence in handling the case, but Interior Minister Xu Guoyong told reporters this week that once the investigation comes to a close, an internal review will be conducted before any further steps can be taken. So, Donovan, very sad story. Yes, indeed. I mean, it's, it's shocking and it's sad... But it's not indicative of Taiwan in general. I mean, there's a certain percentage of the human population that's just dysfunctional, um, regardless of what country you're in. But embarrassingly for Taiwan, and as horrible as this tragedy is, the problem is it's the second young Malaysian woman who uh, has died this year. Uh, so it, 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 from the Malaysian side, 
I think there it appears slightly like this is something of a pattern. Uh, I don't think that Malaysians are particularly being targeted. I think that would be you know a complete stretch, and this does appear to be completely random. Um, but yeah, fundamentally, in these situations where you have one unstable nut job, basically, is is what's happened here, uh, commits a horrific crime, and then there's a large public outcry, which in this case, unfortunately, is an international incident. Um, of a lot of people, there's a lot of talk, and then a lot of small steps are taken. Uh, to make sure it doesn't happen again. But realistically, this is not the kind of thing that you, you – there's not a whole lot you can do that Taiwan isn't already doing. So at, at, in the long term, I don't see that very much is actually going to change as a result of this. I completely agree. Um, I'm looking at statistics of uh, murder rates, and in 1999, they were three times higher. Um, Taiwan's murder rate, according to various sources, is approximately 0.8 out of per 100,000 people. And this makes it actually lower than Malaysia and many, most other countries. So therefore, um, indeed, uh, these numbers are dropping. The numbers of murders and what have you is has dropped. So Taiwan has long been considered one of the safest nations in the world. Uh, there's been various sites that have said so, like Numbio and so forth. And I do agree that people, especially in Malaysia, might see a pattern. Uh, what previously they thought was a very safe area is now dangerous because two women, especially one in January 7th, was murdered. But that was in Jilong, which was northern Taiwan. And this case that happened recently was in southern Taiwan. So people tend to make a pattern in their minds that, ah, maybe Malaysian women are being targeted. But not really. And I've also seen pictures of this woman. I mean, uh, from it's, it's not very easily, uh, uh, you can't easily tell that she might be Malaysian, you know, she, so it's very clear that, uh, you know, she was randomly targeted, as uh, the murder suspect uh, has said. Now, in terms of um, the, I think the September 30th case where this woman screamed loudly uh, around the same area after somebody tried to abduct, abduct her, uh, I do believe that this might be an issue. Uh, the, the police did say that they did try to follow up on this case, but maybe it, it yeah, there's, it's still ongoing whether or not, quote unquote, the police ate the case, as in they didn't do enough. But as Donovan pointed out, these things are uh, quite random. It does happen. Uh, that said, uh, there are other controversies related to this. For instance, uh, there's allegations that they shut off the lights around the area after 7 p.m., which is a little early, um, and that someone keeps breaking the lights, you know, so it gets darker. Uh, but if one lives around uh, rural areas in Tainan or actually all of Taiwan, yes, there are long stretches of road. In this case, there is. It's near an underpass uh, where it can get dark in some corners. And yes, there were instances where students did ask, hey, do you want to go home together just to be more safe? Those are still practices we probably should follow uh, because there's a safetyness in doing so. However, it still doesn't guarantee random attacks or random things happening. Uh, I think last year or two years ago, there was a poor little girl, or a couple of years ago, there was a poor little girl who was beheaded in front of her mother. You know, these are things that could be stopped even if the mother is there. Uh, 
So as I said earlier, the numbers are dropping. It's great that the university is putting together a, um, a safety group. That should have happened earlier. Uh, indeed, Taiwan still has some things to learn in the United States or the UK. It is the norm to have safety uh, uh, notices or broadcasts. Finally, um, I do think it was great that uh, she was given a honorary diploma by the university. Uh, it's the least the university could do, and they give that to her parents who visited to collect her ashes. And again, this is a very sad event, but the fact remains that Taiwan has worked hard to reduce its crime, and it still is one of the safest nations in the world by numbers. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the Constitutional Court on Tuesday heard legal arguments on whether convicted sex offenders should be held in a designated facility for mandatory therapy after release from prison. Now, the argument revolves around Article 22-1 of the Sexual Assault Crime Prevention Act. That act states that sex offenders can be ordered to undergo inpatient treatment after completing their prison terms if a medical evaluation concludes that there is a danger of recidivism. Although the law specifies that the offenders must be evaluated on a yearly basis to determine their rehabilitation progress, it does not set a maximum period for such therapy, meaning that, in principle, they can be held indefinitely. Now, the four petitioners in the case are asking the Constitutional Court to rule on a maximum period for treatment in the psychiatric facility designated for that purpose. And one of the lead petitioners in the case served a three-year sentence between 2008 and 2011 for a sexual offence and has since been held in compulsory therapy at a psychiatric facility because he's deemed a threat to the public based on his annual medical evaluations. So Donovan there, the Constitutional Court, being asked to rule on what to do with sex offenders. Yeah, I mean, the underlying problem here is that laws are written to have specific sentencing guidelines. And this basically throws all these sentencing guidelines out the window because once they leave jail, then they can become detained for psychiatric treatment for, it could be, you know, who knows how long. The really fundamentally what they need to do, I think, is is actually the law itself, the original laws themselves need to be examined to make sure that there are clear guidelines on how long this goes for and what the standards are, whereas, because right now, you could, you could, as you noted in your intro, people could be detained indefinitely even though they've served their time. And in the, 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 the law case, you know, this case is coming up because people have actually, they did the crime, they did the time, and then now they're doing more, yet more time and more time and more time indefinitely without any clear guidelines on to, as to how that's going to end. And you can't keep people indefinitely without any clear legal guidelines as to when, why, and how that's the case. And uh, yeah, I agreed. And this is actually quite complicated. Uh, I heard about one case that apparently 
lasted nine years, and this person didn't rape anybody. However, he did have、uh, mental problems where medical professionals, year after year or after examination, kept him there. Now the question becomes: What happens if this person is released, and the first thing they do is commit a crime? And this is actually quite complicated because,、uh, indeed, we can't just put a time limit. Some people uh, are uh, need better mental health and don't have it, and are on a very long road to recovery. And that long road to recovery could take, sometimes in certain cases, decades or worrisome, worrisomely never. And in that, that's the reason why I personally think、uh, more of an independent committee,、uh, made up of、uh, medical experts, could also come in to take a look as a second opinion.、Uh, you know, if somebody is mentally deranged, and you know, we can't just set a timeline. For instance, uh, uh, you know, oh, five years is the limitation, and they're released, and the first thing they do is commit a crime. These things have happened a lot, so recidivism is definitely a big worry. Um, on the other hand,、uh, you can just imagine the public outcry as soon as one of these cases turns out to results in harm,、uh, you, you know, and then who knows what will happen legally then. So for now, I do think an independent committee is the solu- is、uh, not a solution, but perhaps might help. The situation a little better,、uh, because、uh, some might say, "Well, the medical professionals there—they have their opinion and they insist." But if we kind of spread out the responsibilities a little bit more and allow more transparency in this process, it could definitely help、uh, these people.、Thank、and Donovan, independent committees to, to to judge on whether sex offenders should be released into the community or still continue to be held at psychiatric facilities. I mean, there, there, there's several different ways of looking at this. I, I think fundamentally, the laws themselves need to be examined, and the laws themselves need to be clear.、Um, and and the, the reason for this is that, as Sean notes, there's always a public outcry、uh, if something bad goes wrong. But I, the, the reason why, if you have clear laws in place, that can actually defend against the outcry. Because if you have, for example, you know, 100 people、uh, who have done their jail time, and one becomes a problem after they've been released, what about the other 99? They have their civil rights. They have their, you know, they they should have the the rights of citizens once they've served their time. Now that doesn't mean that there sh- there shouldn't be in some cases people who are. Kept for medical health reasons. In other words, if they are genuinely,、uh, they are they are genuinely medically not sane, then that's a, a different situation, and that does need to be evaluated. And that's where independent、uh, committees come in. But detaining people arbitrarily and indefinitely, that should be something that should you know be very carefully thought through.、Um, Because you know, as citizens, should have the right to be free, and detaining somebody indefinitely without very careful consideration is a serious、uh, human rights violation. So that needs to be evaluated. There's also possibly stopgap measures measures here that are sort of neither here nor there, where they're not detained, but they receive、um, psychiatric help in other ways. In other words, they may be required to have consultants with psychiatrists, 
you know, once a week or twice a week or that kind of thing, where they're not actually detained, but they're being somewhat monitored and are given help, uh, given the appropriate medical help. Oh, indeed, yeah, that's a, that's correct. Right, and the Taiwan Association for Human Rights this week filed a lawsuit against the Ministry of the Interior in an attempt to block the government's plans to begin issuing new electronic ID cards from next year. Now, the association says the lawsuit has the backing of 58 professionals and is part of efforts to ensure that the government has the strongest possible data protection and privacy policies in place before the EID cards are issued. And according to Association Secretary General Shi Yisheng, the government is continuing to ignore warnings from NGOs as well as from legal and information security experts concerning the possible risks to privacy posed by the EID cards. And Scher says that the government needs to formulate new laws or amend current laws to reduce the risk of breaches of information security. So, Sean, you'll be getting a new EID card sometime next year, apparently. Are you happy with its safety? I will tell you a couple of things. First off, uh, I do like its new appearance. It is much better looking than our current cards, which are laminated together and look pretty. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't. I'm not sure what word I want to use, but to be least offensive, it looks cheap and it looks easily forged. That said. Uh, I do agree with the Taiwanese Association for Human Rights. I mean, they're absolutely correct. Privacy is a very important issue, especially in light of the fact that just a couple months ago, it was revealed that Chinese hackers are suspected of basically breaking into online job banks, and they stole data on nearly half of Taiwan's workforce. Six million people uh, had their information stolen. In the United States, similar things have happened where almost half the population of the United States had their uh, uh, data stolen, especially from, uh, and it's suspected that there were Chinese hackers. And this results in a huge security problem. Uh, Having more information on these citizen digital ID cards is very problematic. As the THR uh, points out, there has been laws in the past in Taiwan that has pointed out that we should put as little information on these chips. Uh, There was an interpretation, I think number 603, uh, that we should retain the option of chipless identity cards. Okay. Now, I did look into the specifications that Taiwan put in for these electronic ID. It seems to be modeled similar to the European Union model, which actually was ratified sometime around 2010. And so they check off the boxes in terms of encryption, uh, using newer technologies and what, what on. And this opens up a big can of worms. First of all, Technology constantly is improving, all right? So security, uh, cryptographic uh, uh, protocols that we used 20 years ago or 10 years ago may be outdated by now, especially when you make it a great target. If every single Taiwanese citizen has their information on this, this becomes a treasure trove. So they need to constantly update this information. They need to constantly update their protocols and standards. It needs to be transparent. Yes, I do agree with the human rights groups that you do need an independent commission that is well vetted, that is filled with industry industry professionals to look into and make sure that this transparent system works. Having a closed system traditionally is not the best security. So there's a lot of work to be done. 
in order to get this done right. This isn't something very easy. So, you know, on the outset, yes, it's nice to have a nice, pretty looking, uh, modern looking, by the way, uh, EID card. It is true that if you go to any other country, uh, be it Vietnam, even uh, countries that are developing, they have better looking EID cards. On the other hand, um, security matters. Privacy matters. What happens if you you know this is expanded? You know, over time, our ID has been used for more and more things. For instance, our medical cards uh, have been expanded. So, in the, in the light of that, will the EID card become mandatory? You know, what happens if something, some accident or some incident happens, and then the government mandates that you must use your EID? then you are now trackable. So that is a privacy thing, that slippery slope argument. On the other hand, uh, it's been pointed out that medical cards were used successfully as a shoo-in instead of using our current ID cards. Uh, there's the citizen digital ID card, which is used for taxes, but now you could use your medical cards for. So we have all these different cards that have separate information on them. Should we combine them in something like an EID? And that is a slippery slope that a lot of privacy groups don't want to happen as well. So, Donovan, putting all the information together on one card, good idea or bad idea? Terrible. Um, I, I, I agree with everything that Sean said. Um, but if you take your medical records, there's no, there's no rational reason why you should have your medical, uh, your medical records on the same card as your national ID. And to a certain degree, by segmenting and compartmentalizing the information on you as a person into se several separate different uh, databases and several different cards and different chips, that makes it much harder for somebody to build a comprehensive data picture of this individual person because they have to go through multiple different systems. That doesn't mean that they can't hack all of these different systems, but for them to build a comprehensive picture on you, Gavin, that means that they have to hack into multiple different systems, which means they have to be much more motivated and put much more effort into it than if they can just hack one. So I, I, I think that having different systems, different cards, and the data compartmentalized is, is safer, although it's still not fu foolproof. And Sean, yeah. what, about, what about having the option to have certain data on your card? Because I believe they, the government have said that. They're going to put, you can have certain data on your card and certain data not on your card. The convenience factor is going to ruin this. Um, you know, I, I, I went to an engineering school. So this is, uh, as somebody who's from that, I, my opinion is that users will tend to go for what's convenient even if it hurts them. Case in point, people will use software all the time that asks for way too much information from them. And you know what, it's, it, they, they're okay with it as long as the app or whatever you know, changes their photo into a dog face or something fun, right? And this is the same problem with the EID. Just because you give them the option doesn't mean that they're gonna choose the safer option. Because for now, they're like, oh, I don't wanna carry 10 cards on me, I'd rather just have the one. So the, the, the results will be the same. You'll still end up in the same thing even if you have the option of chipless ID cards. And this is exactly why we need an independent privacy protection agency, right? Uh, almost 100 countries around the world has one. The EU mandates it with the GDPR. And yes, it's more of a hassle, but this is a national security concern because we have an aggressive nation next door. 
that could use this information against us. Now, people might argue, hey, what are they going to do if they find your information? What's the harm? Well, because you can use that metadata to construct who might be a spy in Taiwan, who might be a spy in Taiwan, or who might be an intelligence officer working for Taiwan, who might be, you know, all the important people you can gather from a lot of this disparate pieces of information. And that becomes a risk. People don't realize it, but it's there. So, yes, giving people the option to put certain information on it is a reality. It sounds nice on paper, but in reality, come on, everyone's going to take the easy way out. And before we go this week, animal rights activists have launched an online petition seeking to bring an end to a popular sheep show at Nanto's Qingjing Farm. Now, the show has apparently been running since 1998 and is a big draw with the throngs of people who flock to the farm on weekends and national holidays. But animal rights groups are arguing that the show causes fear and discomfort to the sheep because performers pull the sheep's mouth up to show the teeth, hold them down to shear the wool, and then place said wool sheared on the sheep's heads. The groups also say that the sheep get confused and bang their heads on fences when sheep dogs chase them around during the show. So, Sean, a sheep show. Don't say that ten times quickly, though. Oh, no, I'm not going to say that too quickly at all. (laughs) Uh, This has become, uh, first of all, I have no idea why the the legislature is debating this. I know that there are animal rights groups who have come out about this. One, the TAEA, which is an animal rights group in Taiwan, has said that they've clarified that they're not against sheep shearing. It's using them for shows or, you know, showing the teeth thing. Yeah, I get it. But (laughs) the funny issue about this is even they acknowledge that it is important for the health of the sheep to have their, uh, 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 to be sheared, you know, and that, uh, and this became a larger argument, you know, uh, Ho Kai, a KMT legislator, uh, you know, was asking, did you ask the sheep for consent, which resulted in netizens uh, making fun of it. Someone, what's notable is that none of these guys are vegetarian when they were arguing uh, and, and, and these legislators are vegetarian so people asked so do you ask uh, the chicken for permission when you eat you know a uh, fried chicken steak right or he asked did you when you go to um, the night market do you ask the fish for permission when you play those uh, uh, fishing games or you know when you eat your meat and the reality is nobody really does so is sheep shearing really that bad well I did some research. I browsed an inordinate amount of YouTube videos where people were sheep shearing compared to the the one in this farm in Taiwan, and I didn't really see a difference. And yes, I do know that sheep might, you know, get confused and what have you, but I remember seeing a YouTube video where after being sheared, one of the sheeps got up and accidentally, you know, knocked itself on the side of something, and it doesn't seem that irregular. Is it really animal abuse? Uh, when they're being herded. Uh, I, actually, I actually come from a country, Sean, where sheep herding is a sport, and when I was a kid, it used to be televised. <laughs> so, yeah, I, there you go. Anyway, Donovan, so sheep banging their heads, but apparently um, the Nanto Animal Disease Control Centre has said that the Chingling Farm has submitted reports about the activities that it does there, and experts have found no major faults in the treatment of the animals at the farm. 
Yes, that's correct. Uh, although the petition says that they are harming and deriding the sheep in front of the, the audience, I'm not exactly sure how you deride a sheep. Um, but the Qingjing Farms de- defends themselves, saying that, among other things, that they need to, they actually need to shear the sheep uh, once or twice a year to prevent against skin disease. Uh, specifically twice a year, and that the reason why the performers show the animal's teeth to the audience is that they can determine the age of the sheep by the number of teeth it has, and that, of course, they have to hold it down so that the when they're shearing it, the animal doesn't get hurt. Um, and yes, uh, the Nanto Animal Disease Control Center has basically, after they've amended the regulations governing the management of performing animals, uh, they, they've gone through the reports, the, they've found, quote, no major faults in the treatment of animals at the farm. So it does appear, as Sean noted out, there doesn't appear to be anything here particularly unusual other than the fact that it's taking place in front of an audience, and they take the wool and put it on the uh, animal's head to make the audience laugh. That seems to be about the only, uh, the only major difference between regular sheep shearing, which produces your, your, your sweaters. Um, but uh, some people get, get sensitive about that, and who knows, perhaps the sheep are actually very emotionally sensitive and feel derided. Well, we should have to ask them, but that's where we have to leave it this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Sean Su. That was fantastic. And on the telephone from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.